Awesome. So uh, if this is your first time or you're new, uh, we're both pastors here. I'm Drew Simpson. This is Aaron Weiser. Um, we're really happy you're here. We want you to feel at home. We also would love to know that you are here. Um, the best way to do that, absolute best, is after the service, there's a welcome card over here at the info table. You fill that in, turn it in. We give you a gift it's from a ministry in India that we support with a wonderful story. Yeah. Um, and also know, if this is your first time, that... Uh, Every week, we get to meet Jesus, we celebrate the gospel, but we also get to encounter him in his word, and we get to encounter him through the relationships we build here as we celebrate together. Yeah. It's a wonderful time. I'm really excited. And you're teaching. I am. Yeah. yeah. We're going to jump in back into Job again. Okay. Week two? Yeah. Week I'm two. very excited. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books, and also, I've heard you teach on it a couple of times, yeah. and my favorite teaching from the book of Job is Dr. Aaron Weiser. <laughs> Thanks. So let me pray for you, and then I'll yeah, cut you loose. Great. Jesus, I thank you so much for um, Aaron, and I thank you uh, for what he's prepared for us this morning. I ask that our hearts would be sensitive to your voice, um, and that you would help him uh, to communicate clearly uh, what you've put on his heart. I ask that your word um, would move in our hearts this morning, Jesus. What a wonderful opportunity to be together, um, to discover you, and to encounter you in your power. Thank you for this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Drew. All right. I still find it uh, a little bit of a crazy thing that we all come together on a Sunday morning. We set up chairs. We set up floor coverings. We turn on lights. And we take a good 30, 40 minutes of our time uh, as a group of people who are following the same God uh, to examine his word together. I'm also amazed at how easy it is for me to not fully take advantage of this opportunity when I'm where you're sitting, uh, when I'm listening, right? Uh, and so uh, I would encourage you again on two fronts. Number one, our time in the book of Job is uh, entirely insufficient uh, for your own growth personally, meaning uh, you will benefit tremendously by using our time in Job on Sunday mornings as a springboard to your time in the book of Job uh, to further your examination, to deeper your, uh, deepen your understanding of God's Word. Uh, because uh, we're, we're three weeks in the book of Job. In three weeks, we cannot begin to tell you everything that there is to tell in the book of Job. Uh, but the second thing is, uh, I want to encourage you towards this morning, is that uh, you would, uh, as, as a habit, as a mental habit, that you would come to this time on Sunday mornings and say, Lord, I'm here to hear from you. I'm ready to hear from you. Would you please speak to me now through your word? And that you would be able to walk out of here on Sunday mornings with a sense of having encountered God which I can't make happen for you. Uh, but that's our prayer for you. Uh, every, every week our staff gets together, uh, prays for this group for this time that you would be able to hear from him. So, with that inspiring introduction, are you ready to jump into the book of Job? That's right. Uh, Job is also one of my favorite books, which I feel a little weird saying that because it is kind of a depressing one. I, am, I do have a little bit of melancholy in me. Um, I want to uh, tell you a story to begin with, 
to give you some context for this morning, and then we're going to uh, unpack in a little more detail the story of Job. Uh, when I was, I think I'm getting the, all the details of this correct, when I was either nine or 10 years old, before we left to go overseas, I was living here, and uh, my family lived on Main Street above the laundromat. Does anyone remember that? Yeah, a few of you remember that. A few of you were there. And uh, one day, no different than any other day, uh, I was goofing off in the house. We were playing in the living room. And uh, I stepped on something sharp. My heel stepped on something sharp. And I felt the sharpness of it uh, on my heel. So, of course, I reacted and felt for uh, what was sharp that had stuck into my heel. And I could not feel anything. And I looked in the carpet and couldn't find anything. Um, so I, it, it hurt, but of course I, as nine-year-olds do, I moved on with my life. And uh, over the next uh, couple of days, my, my, the pain from that was not subsiding. The pain from that prick of whatever I had stepped on was not going away. And so uh, my dad uh, took a sanitized pair of tweezers and a hatchet and begin to uh, see if possibly uh, something had actually taken up residence in the heel of my foot and couldn't find anything. And so as you do, you go on with your life. Well, over the next couple of weeks, I started to uh, actually change the way that I was walking. And my parents noticed this, of course, that I was favoring one foot and keeping weight off my other foot because of the pain. And so uh, they finally took me into, I shouldn't say they finally, they at exactly the right time took me in to uh, see a doctor, as good parents do. And, um, and the doctor poked around a little bit and said, I can't, we can't find anything. It, it probably just got infected or something and it'll eventually go away. Well, a couple of weeks later, I was still hobbling. I was actually, the pain had increased. I was still favoring my one foot. And so my dad uh, said, we're going to take care of this once and for all. Uh, grabbed a skill saw and uh, <laughs> through great uh, tears and pain and shrieking and agony, extracted from my foot a chunk of a toothpick. Uh, that I had stepped on in my heel and had gone up so far that it had disappeared and had basically uh, moved into a timeshare in my ankle. <laughs> Thanks, Pops. I don't know if I ever said thank you. <clears throat> what I want to do this morning, uh, this is, this, my teaching this morning is less of like a practical do A, B, and C. What I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to dig deep for something. Uh, for many of us, this is my observation in my own life and my observation as a pastor who is involved in the lives of many other people, that for many of us, there, there may be one or two fundamental errors in our understanding of the gospel that maybe someone has looked at and said, ah, I think you're fine. Uh, maybe even a professional has looked at and said, ah, I think you're fine. And yet, the consequence of that is that we're always hobbling. We're never exactly right. 
And until the truth of the word of God comes into our life and is able to, to dig down, even if painfully, and, and, and root that thing out, that offending thing, uh, we are not able to uh, function normally as God intended us to function in relationship with him. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to I dig down a little bit this morning and uh, possibly for you in your own life pull something out that's festering there and inhibiting your walk with the Lord. To do that, I want to introduce you to Job. I've always thought that Job as a story uh, begins in the wrong place because Job begins by God uh, having a conversation in heaven where he says, uh, have you noticed my servant Job? There's nobody like him on the, old, on the whole earth. He is without peer. He is more righteous than anyone else uh, on the face of the earth. And I think, I want to know the guy. I want to become familiar with the guy that over time led God in a private conversation, unbeknownst to Job, to make this claim about Job. What was it that Job was up to? The story of Job is actually what happens after that conversation. It's calamity and then processing that calamity, which we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. Well, the beautiful thing is, is that in Job 29, we have uh, Job's description of his life prior to Job 1.1. And uh, it's the life that led God to make these really phenomenal claims that we don't see made anywhere else in Scripture. There's no one like Job on the face of the earth. So I want to run through real quick, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to run through real quick and introduce you to the main character of the story as God had already known him to be prior to the beginning of Job. First of all, Job was led by God's word. Chapter 29, verse 3, when his lamp, this is Job talking about his previous life, when his lamp shone over my head and by his light I walked through darkness. Uh, Job uh, was able to use the truth of God's word as a light to navigate through what would have otherwise been dark places, right? He was used to tuning into that. He was led by God's word. Number two, Job enjoyed friendship with God. Verse four and five, again, this is all in chapter 29. As I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent and when the Almighty was yet with me. So again, this is Job reminiscing about the past. He says, there was a time in the past where my relationship with God, I would have described it as a friendship. We had that kind of closeness. And he's actually lamenting the fact that it doesn't feel that way anymore. Job enjoyed friendship with God. Continuing on, when the Almighty was yet with me and my children were around me, Job was a family man who gathered his family, who understood his role as the father to be a nucleus, and my children were around me. Job enjoyed abundance. As from God, all of the, all of the uh, increase that he experienced as a leader, as a businessman, um, 
he attributed to the hand of God. He says in verse 6, he says, when my steps were bathed in butter and the rock poured out for me streams of oil. Now, I used to get a little hung up on when my steps were bathed in butter because I couldn't for the life of me figure out how that is appealing to anybody. Uh, and then I went to uh, Body Works and discovered that everything today in lotion form is called butter. So maybe that's what he's talking about. No, butter and oil, he says, my steps were bathed in butter and oil came from the rocks. Butter and oil are not naturally found substances. They're both made. And they're both made through great effort, right? Butter is churned and oil is usually distilled in some way. He says it's as if those things that normally I would have to work so hard for, it's as if God was just giving those things to me. I can't even take credit for the nature of the increase that I've enjoyed. But I do enjoy abundance as from God. Number five, Job occupied a seat of honor in his community. Verse seven, when I went out to the gate of the city and when I took my seat in the square, the young men saw me and hid themselves. I think we should try that for a while. Young men in the room, next time you see me, I want you to run and hide. It's out of respect. And the old men arose and stood, and the princes stopped talking and put their hands on their mouths. The voices of the nobles was hushed, and their tongues stuck to their palate. Job says, when I, when I came into the gate of the city, which is sort of like what we would say maybe equivalent to city hall, where decisions about the welfare of the city were made, says, when I showed up and took my seat, that was a place of honor. I was respected for my input, for my wisdom, for what I had to offer. Which begs the question, why was he so respected? He goes on. Job pursued mercy, verse 11 and following, for when the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it gave witness of me, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the dying person came upon me, and I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was father to the needy. Job was a man who was, who was outdoing it for the poor, the orphan, the dying person, the widow, the blind, the lame, and the needy. Job says, I was the one who was there involved in the lives of all of those categories of people to not only be a blessing to them, but he says, when the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it gave witness of me, meaning what Job is actually saying, he says, if you take any one of these demographics, these groups of people, he said, when I, when I showed up on the scene, people called me blessed because they knew that when Job showed up on the scene in the lives of these people, that it was good news for them. He had developed this reputation. He was known for his generosity, for his compassion, for his mercy. When the ear heard, Job's on his way, they said, oh, thank God, Job's on his way. He goes on. Verse 14, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. 
and I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. Job executed justice on behalf of those who could not find any justice. Those who were being oppressed, those who were being harmed, says, I didn't carry my righteousness just inwardly. It was my clothing. And I got involved on behalf of those who had no one to save them, no one to rescue them. He continues on. Job spoke words of wisdom. Verse 21, to me they listened and waited and kept silent for my counsel. And after my words, they did not speak again and my speech dropped on them. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouth as for the spring rain. I smiled on them when they did not believe. In the light of my face, they did not cast down. I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. Job was not just uh, enjoying the fruit of his righteous life. He was not just showing mercy and compassion to the helpless, to the destitute. Job was taking all of these valuable lessons and making them available to other men who would listen, who would hear from him. He was disciple-making. He was mentoring. He was calling out young men to truth and to wisdom. Lastly, Job honored his marriage covenant. Chapter 31, we're going to jump two chapters forward. I made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? In verse 9, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I have lurked at my neighbor's door, then may my wife grind grind another man's grain, and may other men sleep with her, for that would have been wicked, a sin to be judged. I'm going to be honest. Job is doing better than all of you and me. I mean, I don't mean to speak down on you. But Job is really getting some things done. He is a man without peers in the way that he lives his life as a blessing to God and as a blessing to others. And then couched there in Job 29, in the middle of the chapter, there's that splinter He says in Job 29, and this is what I want to focus on this morning. In Job 29, verse 18, he says, And then I thought, as a result of all of what I've just described to you, and then I thought, I shall die in my nest. I shall multiply my days as the sand. My roots spread out to the waters, and dew lies all night on my branch. My glory is ever new with me, and my bow is renewed in my hand. And then I thought, number one, that I would die in my nest, a place of security and safety. And then I thought, I thought that as a result of my life, I would multiply my days, a long and healthy life. That's what I thought. And then I thought my root is spread out to the waters, meaning all of the resources that I would ever need, I had access to. 
And then I thought, my glory is ever new, meaning I had earned for myself a permanent position of respect. And then I thought, my bow is renewed in my hand. Essentially, remember the scene of Legolas where he's, all the arrows, like, takes down like 15 orcs at a time? No? That was close. My boat is renewed in my hand, meaning there is a constant supply of arrows. My defenses are replenished. I'm safe. I'm secure. Chapter 1, verse 13, and one day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, again, he had 10 children, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. Sabaeans. And they put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven. I don't know how else to explain it to you. And burned all of your sheep and the servants who were tending to your sheep. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and they swept down on your camels and stole all of them. And they put the servants who protect your camels to death. They were all killed. And I am the only one who managed to escape to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters, they were feasting drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. And suddenly, a mighty wind swept in from the desert, a tornado or something, and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them. And none survived. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you And at this, Job got up and he tore his robe and he shaved his head. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. And the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin, 
by charging God with wrongdoing. And so Satan, chapter 2, verse 7, afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat in ashes. Job says, I, I looked at my life. I looked at my, my relationship with God, my ministry, my career, my calling. I looked at all of that. And then I thought this, that I would stand in the tangible fruit, the tangible reward of those things for the rest of my days. That's what I believed. And not only is that what I believed, that is what I hoped. He says in Job 3.25, the very thing that I feared has come upon me. The very thing that I dreaded has happened to me. That's the story of Job. The rest of the chapters are a long conversation where his friends are mean to him and Job defends himself. But I want to root out the toothpick. I want to root out that thing that maybe for you, in some relationship, maybe it's your relationship with God, maybe it's your relationship with others, is causing you to hobble in that relationship. It's a source of pain that you have not been able to put your finger on, and yet you realize there's something, something that's not, I'm not experiencing what the gospel seems to claim is, is possible, is available. Job believed that his righteousness had purchased something for himself. All of my good deeds, I thought, had guaranteed something for myself. I had paid for something. I had purchased something. When Job was led by God's word, he believed that he was purchasing something for himself. When Job was enjoying friendship with God, he believed that that friendship was purchasing something for himself. When Job was gathering his family as a father, he believed that he was getting something for it, that he was purchasing something for himself. When he walked in God's abundance, attributing his abundance to the Lord, he believed that he was purchasing something for himself. When he occupied the seat of honor, he believed that he was purchasing something for himself. When he showed mercy, he believed that he was purchasing something for himself. So when he helped the needy and gave them resources, he believed that he was purchasing something for himself. When he helped the widow, when he helped the orphan, when he helped the blind, the lame, he believed in those acts of righteousness, which they are, that he was purchasing something for himself. When he executed justice, when he spoke words of wisdom, when he honored his marriage covenant, Job, at some basic foundational level of his psyche, of his heart, believed that he had 
bought something for himself. I'm not suggesting that every action of Job was somehow corrupted, but by Job's own admission, and then I thought that I had secured for myself safety, security, abundance, provision, a long and healthy life. That's what I believed that I had secured for myself. Job believed that the sum total of his good life had guaranteed for himself a certainty of life outcomes. You tracking with that? Job, by his own admission, he believed that the sum total of his good life had guaranteed for himself a certainty of life outcomes. I want to read you a passage. First Corinthians. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to come back. This is one that some of you will be familiar with. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. I think I forgot to put this on the screen. That's fine. If I speak in the languages of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. In other words... Everything that I would do to give my life away is, is a price, right? I have paid a price and purchased nothing. If I speak Jenny's love language perfectly, which, by the way, is acts of service, If I speak it perfectly, but I'm not motivated by a heart of love towards her, all of my acts of service become an, an irritating, almost intolerable noise to her. This is true in all relationships. Let me explain this to you. If, if my kindness to my wife is something that I have used to purchase something for myself, the truth of my motives will always become apparent, right? As soon as my kindness, which I show my wife through acts of service, if I show her that kindness and I do not gain something for myself, that thing that I believed that that kindness would have purchased, she will recognize very quickly in my uh, fake smile that I am not happy with my purchase, right? 
It has been my habit for years to go home on Thursdays. Thursday's the last day of the work week for me, and every Thursday I leave my office a little bit early, and I leave my office knowing that I have not gotten done everything I need to get done for the week. But being, you know, husband and father of stature that I am, I am committed on Thursdays to going home early and making dinner, pizza, for my family and serving my family dinner. And one day, one Thursday, a few years back, my wife walked into the kitchen and asked me the question, do you really need to use so much cheese? I lost it. I confess to you now, it was one of my low moments in integrity and dignity as a husband. Truth be told, it was a fair question. I probably don't need to use so much cheese. But I'm operating under this belief that my service has purchased me something. In that case, it has purchased me an immunity from certain criticisms, right? And when you don't pay on my purchase, I'm no longer happy with my purchase. If I speak languages of men or of angels, but I'm not guided by love, it's an obnoxious sound that eventually becomes a burden to the recipient. Because everything that I've extended to you out of love comes at a price, and you begin to feel the weight of that price and the expectation of that debt. And you say, I'll tell you what, why don't you not make pizzas on Thursday nights? Because I'm not sure that I can agree now to spend the rest of our life never offering you critical input. Well, fine then. We do this to our children. Well, let me take that back. I do this to my children. I've been nice to you. I've bought you stuff. I let you do stuff. You owe me a good child. <laughs> the least that you could do is provide for me a good child. That's all I ask. If you can't provide that, good Lord, what am I doing anyways, right? <laughs> Employers and employees. In fact, this is discussed in my own studies in, in organizational leadership research. There is a philosophy of organizational leadership that's called transactional leadership, and that is, I give you something, you give me something. That's how it works. That's how it works between employers and employees. I give you money, you give me a service. It's a transaction, that's all it is, it's nothing more. And all of the research says this just doesn't last, it doesn't hold up, it falls apart over time. It's a transaction. I'm not kind to my employees, I'm not generous with them just because I love to be generous or because I care about them personally. I'm generous to them because I expect something from them in return. I'm purchasing something for myself. 
And probably one of the saddest conversations I've had in the last number of years as a pastor, and I've had it a few times. I did these things for my church family, and my church family did not do what they were supposed to do. My goodness had purchased something for myself from my church, and my church didn't pay up. And now I'm angry or resentful or hurt, bitter. We are so deeply locked into economic ways of thinking about loving others, giving and taking, giving and taking. It's a transaction. And when you talk about entirely separating the way that you relate to others out of that tendency, people will say, that's ridiculous. Life doesn't work that way. And I say, no, it's not ridiculous. Life doesn't work that way. It's impossible. Apart from the supernatural transformation that only the Holy Spirit can bring about in your heart and life as you lean into Christ. If I have great wisdom and insight into marriage or into uh, child rearing, or into church ministry, or into organizational leadership, but I do not have love at the end of all of my expertise, I will be empty. Paul says, I am nothing. If I give everything, if I pay every price to serve my, my employees, my church, my spouse, my children, but I do not have love in me. I have gained nothing. First he says, you're, you're a noisemaker. And then he says, you are nothing. You're empty. And then he says, you have gained nothing. In all of that, that cost, the price of giving your life away, you have not actually gained anything, which then begs the question, what does the added ingredient of love enable me to gain? And let me give you a simple illustration. I did warn you this isn't like a practical step-by-step. I'm monologuing here. Here's a simple illustration. If I eat ice cream, but I do not love ice cream, what have I gained? A few pounds. But if I eat ice cream, and I love ice cream, what have I gained? My love for that thing has already benefited me, right? Because I love that thing that I did. If I love my wife, or if I do the loving things, if I serve my wife but don't love her, there's no gain in that. But if I serve her while loving her, the gain is in the experience of serving her, I find intrinsic value in it. Which leads me to my first of two conclusions. Number one, love's first gain is love's expression. Do you know what the first benefit is for me making pizza on Thursday nights for my family? It's making pizza on Thursday nights for my family. Love's first gain is its own expression. 
I could do that every week for the rest of eternity and not find any joy, any benefit, or, or secure any uh, gain from that. Or I could add love to it and find all of it to be a benefit, all of it to be gain. Because love has transformed my experience. A loving husband finds a bountiful gain through expressing his love for his wife. That is the first benefit, is in the expression of it. Love's first gain in my relationship with my children is in the expression of love. I love my kids because I enjoy loving them. I serve my church because I find joy in serving my church. I care for my employees. I serve my employer faithfully because it brings me joy to do that. What is it that brings me that joy? The secret ingredient of love. Love's first gain is love's expression. It's simply the opportunity to serve others with love. How does this connect to the gospel? Many of us hobble in our spiritual walk because we are still making the mistake of Job. We can't believe that God really, truly loves us just because he created us. And so we earn and we earn and we earn and we feel good or bad based on our capacity to earn. We work to purchase life outcomes that we desperately want. And some of you live under the plague of shame and guilt because you have not, you don't feel successful in purchasing those life outcomes. You're pretty sure that your life outcomes are going to be a disaster and that's going to be God punishing you for all of your past bad decisions. And there's others of you that are on the precipice that Job was on believing, maybe I have been good enough to guarantee certain life outcomes from God. Both are dangerous places to be. Colossians 2, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So all of the sin, all of the harm, all of the indebtedness has been removed You don't have to earn. You don't have to prove. If you believe that your good life or your good decisions have guaranteed certain outcomes, you're making the same mistake as Job. And if you believe that your bad life or your bad decisions have guaranteed certain outcomes, you're making the same mistake as Job. Love's first gain is love's expression. It's the opportunity to express love. Love's second gain is love's potential. Because love is so satisfied in the opportunity for its expression, love sets other people free. You understand that? If I give my wife flowers in order to purchase something from her, 
I've indebted her to me. If I give God my goodness in order to purchase something from him, I've indebted him to me. True love is so satisfied in the opportunity for its expression that it sets other people free. When I, when I do something kind for my church, when I serve my church family, I have already experienced the joy in that service such that you're not left feeling at the end of my service that you owe me something. It actually sets you free. I don't serve my wife in order to put her in debt to me. When she sees me enjoying my service, finding great satisfaction, great sense of purpose in loving her with no debt attached to it, she's liberated to love me in return. When I do this to my children, when I love and serve them, never indebting them to me, but I, f I find my joy in giving my life to them, I've already experienced such gain, such benefit, and I have set them free to make choices about their relationship with me and their relationship with God. Galatians 5.1, I'm going to invite the worship team up. I'm going a little long here. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Don't start out your Christian walk with this understanding that salvation is free and then make yourself indebted to the Lord. He has wiped out, canceled forever any debt that you owe. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Godly love always has a liberating effect upon its recipients. Job says, and then I thought, and then I thought that God would do these things for me. And when he didn't do those things, I was left with really just one question. Do I love him? Because if I don't have love, I never had anything anyways. constantly amazed at how deep-rooted the legalistic mindset of earning God's approval or his dissatisfaction is embedded in my heart. He says, no, 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 I've set you free. I intend to bless you, and I may bless you in the form of suffering. I may bless you in some other way, but my heart is good towards you. My love for you is free. You are not in debt. You owe me nothing. It's been canceled. Now the question is, do you love me? And do you want relationship? Let's pray together. God, I find myself in my own life going through these cycles of either thinking I have qualified myself for something in response or 
laboring under the burden of having disqualified myself. And God, your love is, is, is beyond that. Your love is perfect. Your love is without condition. Your love is complete. I pray for those here in the midst of disappointment, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of difficulty. We wouldn't buy into the lie that all of this is some kind of game where we have to figure out what it is that we owe, what it is that you need. God, that you would set us free by your love to enjoy relationship with you and that your love would grow in our hearts towards others. Jesus' name. We have a few responses now. Uh, we have communion, which is us uh, remembering the love of Christ on the cross, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. There's stations around the room. Uh, you can give during this time to support the ministry of Church on the Rock. We'll have some ministry team members over here. Uh, they would love to pray with you for any reason uh, that you have this morning. We're going to go into a time of worship, but I would ask you to do this. Uh, we're going to sing about the love of God as we begin. I encourage you just to stay seated uh, for a couple of minutes here in the beginning and just come before the Lord in your own heart um, and uh, speak to him personally. That's what's been made available to you. He's good. Uh, a couple of quick uh, reminders as we go. Shiloh's here. That's a reminder. It's good to see you. Uh, I'll have the prayer team ministry members uh, stay put over here. Uh, if you'd like prayer as we go, I want to draw attention to, um, I did a study, uh, this is a couple years ago now, on the 29th chapter of Job. It's a study for men. It's a devotional. Um, if you're interested, we have just a handful of copies over at the info table. If you pick one up today, it's my gift to you. You don't need to pay for it. You can grab that. Uh, there are house churches happening tonight. There is junior high happening tonight. There is not senior high happening tonight. Sorry, senior hires. Um, we officially end at 1230. You can stick around and help clean up. But until I see you again, walk in the freedom of the Lord. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.